Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Um, last week, too, I had a chance to listen to, uh, to Brother Ed Goodman's sermon from last week on Agrippa's near conversion. And I think, and I agree with him, that it's probably one of the most tragic accounts, uh, tragic soul-winning accounts in Scripture, because he got this close, and when he said, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. I mean, how, how sad and how tragic for Agrippa. We don't know what happened with Agrippa after that. We don't see any other, uh, any other things in Festus and all of those things. We don't see what happens in their lives. I hope and I pray that they later came back and passed through that almost threshold into full persuasion of conversion in Jesus Christ, but we don't know. So the thing is, is Christ's offering of salvation demands that we respond because salvation and life in Christ is a free gift that is offered to us. But just like any gift, it cannot become a gift or we cannot benefit from the gift until we accept it. There's no good to have a gift that's offered to us that we never even open and use. Oh, it's nice that the gift is offered, but until we reach out and receive it and we apply it, it doesn't become of benefit to us. And sadly, this is what many people today in our world are doing with salvation. They hear it. They think it's a wonderful story. It's sweet. It makes for some interesting movies. But when it comes to the gospel, to never receive the gospel and apply it individually is something that we must do that many people are missing out on as well. And as a church, I think we need to understand that the gift is not something that we just inherit. Simply because my grandma was a Christian, or my mom was a Christian, or my dad was a Christian, doesn't mean that I will be. I must trust him individually and personally as well. Now, we have a great responsibility to pass our faith on to the next generation, but it must be something that that generation receives in faith just as we have as well. So today I want to look at an account from Scripture that gives us a much happier ending. For we're going to look at an account, a gospel witnessing account, where the person actually receives salvation and trust in Jesus Christ as her Savior. So would you like, if you would, to look at John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. This is an account that many people are familiar with. It's a story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Beginning in verse number 1, it says, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing himself, but his disciples were doing that. He left Judea and went again to Galilee. And he had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Not Psycho, but Sychar, all right? He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about noontime. It was a, or it was about the sixth hour. And when you count from 6 a.m., which was sun up in the Jewish calendar in the Jewish time, sixth hour would be about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said, give me a drink because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And she said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water from? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. 
And Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw water again. And he said, go and call your husband and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is very true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and it is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now pay attention to verse 26. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I love when she says in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming one day. I believe it. I hold out hope for that. And Jesus said, hope is here. I'm standing right in front of you. Father God, I pray that you will speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, do a work in us this morning. I pray as I preach that I would be your mouthpiece. I would not want to say anything that would hinder your word, your truth from going forth. And I pray this morning that as your word falls on us, it would not just fall on our ears, it would not just fall on our minds, but it would fall on our very hearts and souls and do a work in us that only your word can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so this story is one that we, that we know fairly well. How many of you have heard the story of the Samaritan woman? right? You know the story. How you could probably tell the story of the Samaritan woman. You know it so well, right? Yeah, I find it kind of interesting that in this series that as we're going through this talking about gospel to every home that the story of the Samaritan woman falls on, falls on the calendar on Mother's Day. See, this scene, along with his interactions, several other interactions that Jesus see, that we see in the Gospels of interactions that Jesus has with women, um, when you put them all together, you see, kind of get an idea of how Jesus viewed and treated women. I mean, this scene, how he treats the Samaritan woman, we're going to look at in depth. But the scene where the woman that was caught in adultery, how he treated her and came to her defense, how he treated Mary Magdalene and the other women who assisted greatly in his ministry, along with the respect that he cared and showed his mother Mary so many times throughout his ministry and even at his moment of death on the cross. And then also how he praised the widow who faithfully gave her last might as being more faithful than those who only gave of their overflow gives us this big picture view of how our, our Savior is compassionate to all, of how our Savior loves and respects and values and places great value on women, especially in the days of a culture in the ancient times when women were viewed only as property and as less than human when compared to men. I think the church of Jesus Christ in every generation, even in ours, could learn a great deal from our Savior and his view on that as well. But that's a sermon really for another time. But I think it's important to understand that when you view how God and how Jesus viewed the role of women and how he cared and had compassion for them, we need to learn some great lessons from that as well. 
And as we progress through our Gospel to Every Home series, I want to look at this well-known account, and I want to take some important cues that we must follow in our effort to evangelize the lost. Because when we go out into the highways and the hedges, and we go out into our neighborhoods, or when we try to engage in evangelism, we're going to come in contact with people who are not always like us. Have you ever noticed that not everybody in the world is like you? You ever notice that? And does that frustrate you like it frustrates me? Because when I think of myself, I think of myself as the perfect human specimen. Don't you? No, don't, don't, I mean, don't have to say amen there. I got you. But, you know, I mean, look at me. No, I'm just teasing. Don't look at me. You might get sick. All right, so what I'm saying is we have this problem with, um, how do I put it? We just it, it would imagine a much easier world if everybody thought like us, talked like us had the same preferences we do. In my family, let me tell you, the most scary time of every day is when we're figuring out what we want to eat. <laughs> Anybody with me on this? Can I get a witness? No one agrees on the same thing. Everyone in my family have different, like, no-fly lists when it comes to food. We have one in our family who doesn't like pizza. Working on that one, salvation there, all right? We have one in our family who doesn't really like Chinese. We have another person who really doesn't like vegetables of any sort, kind, or flavor. Um, you know, and then me, who obviously, I'm just the garbage compactor who will eat anything, right? I'm like, just make up your minds, people. There's so many rules on what we can eat, it's ridiculous, all right? So anyway, anybody else with me on that? Should we start a counseling group? Okay, anyway, so... I don't know where I'm going with this. Oh, I know where I'm going with this. I was just trying to, you know, just make you feel sorry for me for a minute. Um, but anyway, what, what I'm trying to say is that we will find people that aren't like us, okay? They may not like the same things. They may not even think the same way we do. And when it comes to faith and when it comes to what we're going to be doing, sharing the gospel, the statistics are true. The majority of people don't know and have not accepted the truth that we know and that has changed our lives. So the thing that we have to do is understand that we are going to come up against folks, and I don't say come up in a confrontational way, we're going to come in contact with folks who don't know yet. Just like Jesus came in contact with this Samaritan woman, there were so many differences and so many even cultural mores that were set in front of Jesus and between Jesus and the Samaritan woman that Jesus broke down so many walls here to bring the gospel to the Samaritan woman today that as a church, these are some important cues that we have to follow as believers who are supposed to take the same action and the same spirit of compassion into places that we may not feel comfortable or that others may look at us and say, why in the world are you engaging in this? Why are you trying to reach people with the gospel here? So I want to look this morning at three things that Jesus does and take these cues from Christ because here's kind of a big idea that we find this morning. There are a whole lot of times and there are a whole lot of things that we can draw from this passage, but one of the themes that I want to look at this morning is how intentively Jesus listened and how actively he cared. He listened to God, he listened to the Samaritan woman, and he actively cared for this woman as well. And his compassion for her caused him to climb over the cultural mountains almost literally speaking, to climb over those cultural mountains in order to get the gospel for her or to her as well. So here's one of the big ideas that we can pull from this message or that we can pull from this passage today is that sharing the gospel requires more than just preaching. It requires more than just knocking on the door and saying, hey, accept Jesus. Preaching and sharing the gospel requires not only sharing the gospel, but also listening attentively to those we are sharing with and caring for them actively. 
And this is something that I think we sometimes, we sometimes fall short of. Because we look at, I need to share the gospel. But sharing the gospel, it goes beyond just what I say with my mouth. But it also is, it also is communicated through how I care with my, whole, with my whole person and my whole ministry and my whole testimony. My prayer for this gospel to every home as a church is that we will not just one time in that lifetime stand on the doorstep of a person in our neighborhood and say Jesus loves you, but that that would begin a relationship, a positive relationship where that person remembers and realizes that there is a group of people over on Dennis Drive who love me and care for me and are here for me. Because that's what the gospel compels us as believers to do. You see, the book of Proverbs tells us this. What we've done as a church and what we oftentimes do, and we focus heavily on it, and when you think about how our worship service is even structured, our worship, our worship, our worship service is structured around words, oftentimes not so eloquently out of this mouth. But the, the message comprises the majority of the service. We are, we are kind of centered around words. So many times what we want to do is want to share our words, but what we also must do is share our love and our compassion as well, and we must share our ears with those around us. The book of Proverbs offers wisdom for the journey of life, and one of the greatest areas he does that is it talks about the area of communication. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13, it says this, the one who gives an answer before he listens, this is foolishness and a disgrace for him. Anybody guilty of talking before you think? We call it putting a, speaking without a filter many times. The Bible actually talked about that, right? Proverbs 18, 17 says, the first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. What that means is when we live in an echo chamber and we never hear anything that, you know, challenges us or anything like that, when we are faced with that challenge, it can sometimes cause doubt, it can sometimes cause anger, it can cause all kinds of things. Here's the challenge for the church today in the 21st century, is that we must know who we believe and am persuaded that he is able, not that we are able, but that he is able. So what do these Proverbs teach us? The answer is simple. Wise people don't yell. They listen well. And when we listen well, we earn the credibility to then speak the truth. Our church is about to embark on this mission to engage our neighborhood and our neighbors with the most important and vital message the world has ever known. And the importance of this message begs us and and, and, and requires us to make sure we do everything we can to deliver it well. But I want to encourage you this, that, that you are delivering the gospel and you delivering it well doesn't depend on how eloquent you are. It doesn't depend on how well-versed you are. It depends on how well you will listen and how well you care because the gospel is spoken through words, but it is also carried out through our actions as well. Yes, it helps to know the gospel. It helps that you've believed the gospel. Matter of fact, if someone has not trusted Christ, they should not be trying to share the gospel. They need to receive it first. But the most important factor in delivering the gospel well is loving people well. That's what will compel us to get out to share it. This requires us listening, hearing the cries of those within our community, of the world around us, not turning a deaf ear, and knowing that Jesus is the only hope. And for this woman at the well today, same as it is for those within our neighborhood, same as it is for you and I sitting in these chairs this morning, or wherever it is you're watching the service, Jesus is our only hope. This is what binds all of us together. Black, white, man, woman, American, non-American, it doesn't matter. All the lines of difference that we, began, that we begin to, in our human ways, begin to draw lines of difference. Here's where we all come together in a common bond. We all need Jesus desperately. 
We're all dead without Jesus. We're all laying in the same spiritual cemetery until Jesus raises us out of the grave like we sang about this morning. So in our text, Jesus models how to both listen well and love God well and people well. Number one, the first thing we have to understand, if we are going to minister the way Jesus did, number one, we have to listen to the Father's leading. We have to listen to the Father's leading. Look back at verse number four again in your text. It says this in verse number four, he had to travel through Samaria. Well, I have to ask this question, why? Excuse me, why did Jesus have to travel through Samaria? He's Jesus. He's the Lord and Savior. He's the King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of priests. He has all authority given to him in heaven and in earth. Remember, that's what Jesus said, right? Why did he have to do that? Who made him go through Samaria? The Father did. The Father led him through Samaria. He was forced and compelled to do this. He listened to the Father's will, and he actively obeyed the Father's will because he lovingly obeyed the Father. The Father's will here wasn't easy, and it caused his disciples to scratch their heads. They're like, they come up and they're like, we're, he goes, yeah, we're, uh, we're going to we're gonna go through Samaria. And they're going, whoa, what are you talking about? What? Huh? Because this is something that Jews did not do back then. Samaria was like Louisville, <laughs> if you live in Lexington. I seriously, and if anyone's from Louisville or watching in Louisville, just give the city to Indiana. You know, just, just go. I'm just teasing. I'm teasing. I don't want to hear I go offending people. Anyway, but they looked at it that way. Nothing good was in Samaria. They had had centuries old fights with one another. There was racism involved, prejudice involved. There was all kinds of things involved in the feud going on between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans were a people who had been conquered at a period of time when the kingdom of Israel was divided and it sat right between the northern and the, and the southern kingdom of Israel. It was kind of like on a, on a very good trade route and all that stuff. But the Assyrians came in and they began to intermarry with the Assyrians. And so therefore the Jews, who were God's chosen people, looked down upon them and said, they're half-breeds, they're, not even, they're only half-chosen by God, they're not fully chosen by God. And so the Jews would avoid... Samaritans as much as they possibly could. They sinfully, the Jewish people sinfully prided themselves on the distinction of being God's chosen people. And instead of wearing that distinction with humble gratitude as because I'm God's chosen, I have more responsibility on myself to love folks like God. They, they approached it with arrogant entitlement, which led to, led to prejudice and racist elitism. See, the Samaritans knew it about the Jews. They had been told more than once that they were unclean, that they were dirty, that they were half-breeds, that they were dogs, that they weren't even fully human in their eyes. And that bred a mutual hatred and skepticism in their eyes toward Jesus. Samaria sat right smack dab in the middle of that route that connected, like I said, northern and southern Israel. And the best and quickest passage for a Jew that was traveling between kingdoms, as many needed to do, was to go through Samaria. But their racism, their prejudice, their skepticism of these people that had been bred in them for centuries caused them to, as they approached the walls of Samaria, they would veer right or veer left and go through roads that were more dangerous, roads that led through mountains, and roads that took them two to three extra days to get where they were wanting to go. They avoided an entire people group because of this idea of just, they're different than me, and so I'm going to avoid everything that is different. You know, this is thousands of years ago, folks, but have we really come any further in our way of thinking, in our way of doing things today? So why does God lead Jesus to the Samaritan woman? 
I believe it's this. Because God knew that there was a woman there that needed to experience the love of Christ. What's beautiful about the Samaritan woman, we won't get into a whole lot of it today. But what happens after the Samaritan woman comes to Christ is all of Samaria comes to Christ. It brought the gospel to a place that it had been intentionally withheld from for a long time. It brought the true understanding of God and his love for them to a place that had intentionally had it withheld from them for a long time. And because those with Jesus, and also because those with Jesus, the disciples, and others that were traveling with him needed to see that the gospel is not just for God's chosen people, but the gospel chooses everyone in his love. The gospel is for all. This was the first step towards the gospel being accepted to be taken to the Gentiles later on when the church is established as well. This is a pivotal moment in where the gospel should reach and what our understanding of that as well. See, Jesus knew the sin of partiality can create cultural disunity and discord. See, there were three big reasons that Jesus should have and would have been expected to and was expected by his disciples to avoid the Samaritan woman. The first one was racial. I already mentioned that. There was a racial divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. She's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. Culturally, there are oil and water. They're not supposed to mix. He's not supposed to care about her, and she's not supposed to trust him. There was the racial reason. There was a social reason as well. Not only is she a Samaritan, but she is a Samaritan woman. That's strike two against her culturally because a woman was in a lower socioeconomic class than Jesus. Jesus obviously wasn't very high on the socioeconomic ladder either, just as a, as, a, uh, as a carpenter from Nazareth, but he was at least higher than a woman in this culture. This woman had been married five times, and all of them had ended either being through being widowed or being divorced, and she's not currently married, so she's someone no well-respecting Jewish rabbi would even be seen with, much less talked to. Matter of fact, in those days, a rabbi in the Jewish culture was not even allowed to speak to a woman at all. So there was the social reason. Then there was the gender reason. Like I said, Jesus was looked at as a rabbi and it was considered unacceptable for a rabbi to speak to a woman according to Jewish culture. And you might be wondering where that was found. That wasn't actually found in scripture. It was actually found in some of those extra laws that the priests began to put on things and the Pharisees later on. Jesus had every reason to avoid the scene altogether, but the Bible says in verse number four, he what? He had to go. The father said, go. So Jesus went through Samaria because the need shared was greater than the divide that split them up. So there was a need for, the Samaria, for Samaria to see the Messiah, and there was a need for Jesus' disciples to see that the gospel is for all. It cannot be withheld from those who we have differences with. See, Jesus did not allow his, also, he did not allow his fatigue to breed faithlessness. Jesus was tired. Look at verse number six. It says he went to the well and he was worn out from his journey. And so he sat down at the well at noontime. How many of you get tired by noon? I need my second, my third, fourth, fifth cup of coffee right after lunchtime. Look, man, I'm just being like Jesus. That's just Christ-likeness being formed in me, right? If you get tired after lunch, you're just like Jesus. No, actually what this shows us is that Jesus was 100% man as much as he was 100% God, Right? He was tired. He was physically wore out from the journey. He was tired. And this is funny. This is the point when most Jews would say, you know what, I'm going to hoof it around the city. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to come in. I'm going to find comfort. I'm going to sit down at Jacob's well. Teaching again, this was ridiculous. His fatigue, though, did not give him an excuse to avoid the call to evangelize. 
Jesus could have been just tired and said, man, I'm just going to take a nap. And then here comes this woman. So how do we apply this to us? See, we have to understand that we live in a world that's filled with partiality and division. Prejudice, racism, sexism, skepticism, all of the isms, they still produce a divided culture today. And as long as Satan is left to do his work, he's going to make certain that he's going to sow seeds of division anywhere he can. Whether it be out in the world or even within the walls of his church, he's going to make sure he sows those seeds of division anywhere he can find soil to plant it. But see, the gospel unifies us and unites us under Jesus. It says when you tear away all of those things that divide us, we find one core thing that we must understand. We're all bound together and we're all the same in our need for Jesus Christ and for love to set us free. See, the gospel only sees two kinds of people, saved and lost, sheep and goats. And it's God's desire for the lost to be saved. And it should be the desire of the saved that the lost be saved too. And the saved need to be willing to take the gospel to the lost regardless of the cultural obstacles that may stand in our way. Why? Because Jesus did it and we're Christians, which means we're supposed to be Christ-like, which means we need to do what Jesus did. See, this is what the Father compels us to do as well. Jesus was told by the Father to go through Samaria. I wonder what our Samaria is that Jesus and God is telling us to go through, but we say, you know what? I don't know. I just don't know. I'm a little afraid. I'm a little uncomfortable. I'm a little skeptical. Listen, gospel to every home, taking the gospel into every corner of our globe, which is what the Great Commission commands us to do, says there are going to be times when we're told to go straight through Samaria instead of around it. It really is. See, we must never tire of the gospel call. A good vertical view of God will give us a proper horizontal view of others who need him. But I think sometimes when we look at people with hate, or we look at people with distinction, and we look at people with partiality, it's a good indication that we don't have a good vertical view of the God who created us and them. It's a good indication of that. See, Jesus listened to the Father's commands. That's the first step of being obedient in our call to share the gospel with others. The second thing is he cared well for the whole need of those that he ministered to. So many times we see in scripture that before Jesus gave the message of the gospel or before Jesus gave the truth of the gospel, what did he do? He met the physical or the emotional or the social need of those he was speaking to. Remember the feeding of the 5,000. Remember when he healed the lame and healed the lepers and all of those things. Jesus met the whole need of the person, not just the need of them to hear the gospel. And it's easy just to say, okay, I just need to preach the gospel and let it fall where it may. Yes, but sometimes, sometimes we can preach the gospel in a way that God doesn't intend for us to do it. We can say, well, I'm a Christian and I believe this, and that means that you're wrong. That's not preaching the gospel, folks. Preaching the gospel means declaring that all of us are sinners and all of us are in need of a Savior. And because of his grace, his love, his mercy, and his justice, he sent his son so we could have an eternal life. If all we ever do is deliver condemnation, we never get to the place of salvation. Jesus cared well for the whole need the implied command to those who seek Christ's likeness is when you see a need, meet the need. I heard it once said this way, a need seen as an assignment given. If I have the ability and I've been blessed by God with the ability to meet a need, then I need to meet it if God has given me the eyes to see it. But how many times are we so busy with our own lives that we see a need, God has given us the eyes to see it, 
And we say, I don't have time. To, and we have the ability to meet it. But then we say, for this reason, I don't have the time to meet it. Jesus took the time to break down all of the mountains that stood in the way for him to reach the Samaritan woman. There will be some mountains we need to break down. There will be some things that will stand, theoretically stand in the way of us answering the call to share. But we have to be willing to be inconvenienced. We have to be willing to be inconvenienced for it. He cared for her emotional needs, first of all. In verses 7 through 12, we see that the woman comes to get water at noon. Why does she go and get water at noon? No one in their right mind goes to get water at noon in an arid, hot, dry culture. The hottest part of the day, why in the world would you go out to get water? Most people came early in the morning or late at night when it was cooler and they could get their work done. She came because she was avoiding everyone. She knew no one else would be there. Why was she avoiding everyone? Because her past sins had led to shame and led to isolation and led to loneliness. She felt unworthy of anyone else, especially God. And all of a sudden she comes to the well at a time when she thought no one in their right mind, no right person would be where I'm going. And she finds that the most righteous person in the world is sitting right there waiting for her. She's shocked to see Jesus, and then she's even more shocked that a man, a man wearing wrapped rabbinical clothes, would even speak to her. See, Jesus met her need, her emotional need, to be seen and to be respected. And all of us want that. All of us want to be seen. We all want to be respected. And imagine if you put your place in her, if you put yourself in her sandals for a second. Imagine how her walls must have begun to fall down when this Jewish rabbi doesn't get up and run away from the well as she approaches. He doesn't stand up and point his judgmental finger at her and say, go away from my presence until I'm gone because culturally he had, he had every right to do so in that culture that day, commanding a woman to be out of his presence, unfortunately. Instead, he initiates a conversation with her. He welcomes her into his presence a chosen Jew asks her, a dirty, unclean, half-human woman for water. Emotionally, imagine how that must have treated her. This immediately begins to put her in a place where she's questioning everything she's ever known about Jewish people, and she perks her ears to what he has to say next. So because he recognized her value, he recognized her as an image bearer of the Father and someone who needed the Son which is what we are called first to see in everyone we see. He cared for her spiritual needs after that in verses 13 and 14. He says, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I give them, they will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up, for him, up in him for eternal life. And because he valued her humanity, he then valued her eternal soul. So this is something that I believe the church is on the verge of losing in our culture today because we get caught up in cultural wars and we get caught up in all of these things. And we get caught up in the fact that our culture is beginning to slide away from, from, from God-fearing traits and, and ideas. And I think there's a book that said, as the days go on, it'll get worse and worse. I believe a book said that. So we shouldn't really be surprised by that, Right? But what we do is we get caught up in the culture wars and what happens is in war, we don't view humans anymore. We just view sides. And it becomes teams. It becomes enemies and allies. But folks, the gospel says, <laughs> if you even have enemies, guess what we gotta do? We gotta pray for them. We gotta love them. We gotta sacrifice for them. This is what Jesus, this is why Jesus turned everything upside down. This is why his way turns it all upside down. 
And as the church, we must begin to see people as human beings that need Christ. Seeing the soul of humanity will, in, will, will, excuse me, will energize an evangelistic spirit. My notes, I wrote too many tongue twisters in my notes today. But seeing the soul of humanity will energize a true evangelistic spirit. See, most of us know the story pretty well from here, right? She said, he says, I'll give you living water, and she doesn't understand it and all these things. But here we see he even cares for her physical needs in verses 15 through 18. See, the woman still not completely understanding that Jesus is truly talking about asked for this water and what would keep her from ever having to come back to the well again. She's thinking, yeah, give me some water that I don't have to come back out here in the hot of day. I don't have to worry about, about being mocked as I walk out there or people talking about me as I walk through town on the way to well. I'd love not to have to do that anymore. She's still not completely understanding. And then Jesus says, go and get your husband, which she says then, I don't, I don't have a husband. I'm, I'm, I'm single. And then she starts singing the Beyonce song. Oh, the single ladies. Oh, you know. No, she doesn't do that. The song hadn't come out yet, or she may have. But so she's, she's like, I'm single. I don't, I don't have a husband. I answer, I don't, I don't have anyone else to answer to. And he says, you're right, you've had five. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. See, Jesus cared too much for her, not only her soul, but also her physical suffering of sin to leave her in that way. And this is why we address sin. This is why God addresses sin in our culture as well, because God cares too much to leave us in the physical ramifications of the sin that we commit. See, Jesus cared too much. See, I'm not sure how this woman came to have so many miscues in love, all right? According to the law that had been adopted in that day, when God said, you know, just write a bill of divorcement for your wife, and Moses then say, you know, said do that and, and all that things and all those things. Along the way came, came ministers and came priests who then added to Levitical law and said, well, if a woman's been divorced three times, she shouldn't be allowed to be married again. Now, you could be widowed a million times, but if you were divorced, if a man put you away for divorcement for three times, you can't be married anymore. Didn't say anything about the man. Again, that wasn't in the Bible. That was in extra-biblical Levitical law that was being practiced that day. So we don't know why this woman has had five husbands. We would have to imagine that it is probably that she has been widowed twice and divorced three times, which is why she is not married to the man she's with now. That's one thing that we can kind of deduce possibly. Some scholars also speculate that maybe she had, been, she had been a prostitute and bought and sold by numerous men who decided to marry her and then just tossed her aside when they got tired. And either way, this woman has been on a journey that has led her with scars, with emotional pain. And now physically she's in a position where she is dependent upon someone that cannot be her husband. So he cares for her intellectual needs as well. And Jesus says this, says, go get your husband. If we're going to set things right, let's set it all right. So Christ's concern for her relationship shows a concern for her physical and her earthly state as well. And then he also cared for her intellectual needs too. So after Jesus starts pointing these things out, immediately she says, well, don't, this is getting a little bit too much into my personal business, so let's just start a theological debate. Theological debates are wonderful things, aren't they? Except for they detract from what Jesus is trying to do a lot of times. We see a lot of theological debates going on today. And here's the thing. When we go and stand at people's doors, there's going to be people with questions. And they're not always going to be asking the questions just for curiosity. They're going to be asking questions to hang up and things. We're not taking the gospel. We're not taking debates to every home. We're taking the gospel to every home. 
And Jesus continues to stick to the matter at hand. But she starts saying, I think you're a prophet. I see that you're a prophet and you're also a Jewish prophet. So let's talk about all the differences we have in our religion. And so she starts saying, you all say that we are not allowed to go and worship on God's holy mountain. So we're stuck over here in this secondary thing. And then when you look at us, you think that we're not even real believers because we don't worship in the same way you do. Yet you're the ones withholding us from coming into your temple to worship. She has some good points, right? And what does Jesus say? Listen, there's a day coming when all it's going to take for people to truly worship is to trust in his son. And she picks that up, doesn't she? She says, I think, I know that the Messiah is going to come one day and set all things right, right? And he says, yeah. He begins to care for her intellectual needs as well. See, what Jesus says here, and Jesus' response here, is God is not as concerned with the legalities and the process by which we worship as he is with who we worship and whether our worship is sincere. Because when our worship is sincere, our process will be right. You see, when our worship is sincere, our process will then be correct. So as we take the gospel to every home, we'll encounter each of these kinds of needs too. And we must be willing and ready to meet those needs. Don't be scared by those needs. And also don't be scared by saying, I don't know the answer, but I can help find it. You know what happens when you tell a person that you've just met, I don't know the answer, but I'll find it. You know what it does? It creates another opportunity to get back together. That's a good thing. So you may be thinking, this is exactly why I can't do this. This is why I can't take the gospel. Because I don't know. I don't know the answers to people's questions. Or maybe I'm too argumentative and all those things. This is where we must submit ourselves to the will of the Father, to the Spirit of God living inside of us and say, I am taking Jesus and I'm taking the gospel into my community. And I trust him to guide me every step of the way. Jesus let her needs become what drew her to him. If we don't want to hear the needs and if we don't want to hear the questions, we won't be able to have a good, credible way to draw a path to Jesus. Because the understanding of the need for the gospel comes when we understand our need is created by our shortcomings, by our questions, by our misunderstandings. And then lastly, this morning as we close out, Jesus finally came to a place where he compelled the woman to embrace truth. Here's the thing. Listening is wonderful. And we listen so that we can get to this point where we declare your questions, your needs, all of those are answered in Jesus Christ. They're answered in Jesus Christ. Jesus compelled this woman to embrace with truth. Here he goes again. Verse 23. An hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. She was tied up on where I worship. He's tied up in how I worship in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. And what he's saying here is he wants anyone that will worship him this way. Jew, Sumerian, Gentile, doesn't matter. If you worship me in spirit and in truth, that's how I want you to worship me. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. She's still not completely understanding. And here comes the moment where she said to embrace truth. He says, I am here standing in front of you. The way, the truth, and the life. I'm standing here. Embrace me. Trust me. Follow me. See, Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ creates a better vision for a better tomorrow. A lot of politicians will stand up at campaign time and start saying, here's my vision for a better tomorrow for my country. The UN will sit in New York City and try to create a better vision for the globe. 
But the gospel has always given us the best vision for the best future, the future that lies in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that there are real temporal problems that things need to address, but Jesus will always be the addressing, the only way to address our spiritual issues, our spiritual problems. See, he says, an hour is coming and is now here. Jesus painted a picture of this brighter future and it revealed a future that would only be seen by following Christ in that very moment. The brighter future was one where Jews and Samaritans would worship the same Lord together, walls torn down, differences cast aside, past failures put behind them, free to genuinely worship without the baggage of sin and the condemnation of the law. And that is what the grace of the gospel pronounces for us today as well. We can worship him freely without the condemnation of sin and the law because Jesus has washed those things away. I thought that would get an amen. Jesus champions what the Father desires. Jesus preaches what the Father wants him to preach. The Father, he says, wants such people to worship him in spirit and in truth. He focused on what the Father wants of humanity, not what tradition wanted of humanity. Jesus' desire is the same as the Father's desire, and our desire must be the same as Jesus' desire, which was the same as the Father's desire for his creation to worship him with nothing standing in the way, dividing or holding anything back. So the question is, how will the lost today see the beauty of worship if we don't worship as we've been redeemed to worship? I ask you this, when you worship the Lord, what's our focus? Is our focus upon the Lord we worship? Or is our focus upon how we worship the Lord? One's right, and one will always lead to distraction. I wonder sometimes if people don't look at church today because when they did, they didn't see people who worshiped in spirit and truth, but people worshiping in some other fashion or with some other motive. And I don't say that in a condemning way. I'm just saying I wonder sometimes if that's what it is. I haven't listened enough to know. But you see, Jesus clarifies the woman's confusion with biblical truth when she says, I know the Messiah is coming. I just don't know where to find him. And he says, I'm right here. And folks, this is the way our world is today. I know hope must be out there. I know there must be hope somewhere. And they're searching and they're clawing and they're Googling and they're trying to find it anywhere they can find it. And we know where hope is. He's in us. He's Jesus. <clears throat> this is why Jesus says, go and tell where you found hope. But if we're silent, and if all we do is trumpet subsidiary things, and we don't trumpet the gospel, how will people know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? The answer was right in front of her. Hope, and this is what we see here in this passage in verses 24 through 26. We see, first of all, that the world is broken. That is an undeniable fact. It was an undeniable fact then, and it is an undeniable fact now. She knows that things are messed up. And even in her confusion, one thing is clear to her. Things are not like they should be. You think she was satisfied with the fact that she'd been married five times? How could she? You think she was happy and saying life is going exactly the way I want it to go and I'm pleased with everything? No, or she would have come, with and get the, come to get the water with every other person that came to get it to. She wasn't satisfied. She knew that the world was broken. There was something deep inside of her that recognized that there was a need for clarity. There was a need for understanding. There was a need for healing. Both the world was broken and she was broken. And then the second thing we see is that hope is found only in the Messiah. This woman affirms something that has been taught to her from the time she was a little girl. Even though the Samaritans didn't understand everything that the Jews did about God, they did understand this. God loves me enough to promise me that a Messiah is coming. 
They didn't understand all the ins and outs of everything, but the Samaritans still knew that hope was possible through the Messiah of God. And folks, this is what the world needs to know. Let's start at the most important thing. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus will save you. He champions what the Father desires. When she says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Even today, these truths are the same. The world we live in is broken, still broken. Everyone still feels the void in the soul that is created by a sin-sick world. Everyone today still hopes for healing in some way or another. We just don't want to accept the fact that the world is just the way it is, and so we just give into it, because to give into it would lead to depression, anxiety, apathy, and just a miserable existence. We hope for something better. We hope that it can be different some way, somehow. We hope, and church, we know the hope. The hope is Jesus. So we've got to stop living so hopeless ourselves because we're the ones who have it. See, the hopelessness that the disciples had accepted was <laughs> the Samaritans are hopeless, man. There ain't nothing for them. We don't even need to go around them. And Jesus said, no, they're deserving of the hope that I have to give them. We can't accept this hopelessness in our generation, we have to be children of hope. We have to be people that deal in hope. Will we do that? That's the question. See, their hope isn't in just being a better person. Our world's hope is not just in having a safer neighborhood. Their hope cannot be in somehow creating a better society. Would those things be nice and are they possible? Yes, but their hope must be in finding someone who gives them understanding of who they are, why they're here, why they've been created, and the holy purpose for which they have been created. And that hope is only found in Jesus. So as we close out this morning, the point to ponder, something to just kind of take with us and chew on this week, is the most loving thing as a Christian can do for someone in crisis is to listen and respond to their immediate and eternal needs. The Holy Spirit will give the ability to find common ground as we plant the seeds of the gospel. See, I had to ask myself and as I was preparing this passage and as I was studying, am I actively trying to listen or am I only concerned with the preaching side of it? And I have looked at this passage so many times. I have preached from the Samaritan woman so many times. But each time I look, God gives me a new angle. And this was the time, this was the question I got this time. Am I actively trying to listen to the people around me? Or am I only concerned with the preaching? Because as a preacher, that's what I'm called to do. That's, that's like the, that's, that's it, man. You're a preacher. You preach, right? But a good preacher to deliver the gospel, to earn the credibility, to deliver the message, must be a good listener. And I wonder sometimes, as, as the church, who's called to preach the gospel, how much better could we preach if we took the time to listen? If we took the time to hear the pain, to see the struggle, to know that it comes from only one place and it comes from the enemy. And we know the answer. So as we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning, I wonder if the church has just embraced, embraced preaching so much that we stop listening. The challenge is that we must open our ears as much as we open our mouths. This is what Jesus did. He listened to her. He knew her. He knew everything that was pertinent about her. He's like, well, it's Jesus. He, he knew everything. That's right. He knows everything. I don't know. The way we get to know is we begin to get to know the person. We listen. 
So the question is, are we ready to listen? What would we hear if we listened to our neighborhood? What would we hear? What would they tell us? What would needs would we find? What questions would we find? We're going to find out, but we need to be prepared to respond with love like Christ did, with compassion like Christ did, and with the truth like Christ did. The question this morning is twofold. Are you ready to listen? Have you come to Christ yourself? Have you listened to Christ's gospel? Have you responded to it? Have you been saved? If you haven't been saved, be saved today. Call upon him and he will save. But for those who know him, where our compassion will meet the road is we're willing to listen, to hear, and we're going to hear a lot as we go. And as Christ, if we go in the spirit of Christ, it will break our hearts even more for the need that people have. Heavenly Father, move in this time of invitation. Do as you see fit in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.